Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine joins the Post to discuss vaccine distribution in his state, lessons learned, and his plans for reopening. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live for another installment of our Leadership During Crisis series. Our guest today was, in fact, the very first guest of this series when it launched last April. He is the 70th governor of Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. John, thank you. Good to be back. Appreciate it. Well, great to have you here, especially almost a year later. Now, you announced last week that anyone over 40 in, in the state, in the state of Ohio, is um, eligible for vaccinations. And by next week, the age will drop to 16. So tell us what, what factors went into that decision? You know, what we've tried to do throughout this is to make the vaccine available to people throughout the state. We want a kind of a different route than some other states. We started with, I think, 650 locations around the state. We're up to 1,300. Now we're layering on top as we get more vaccine. We're doing some of the mass vaccination sites. We have one federal one um, the White House is working with us on uh, is in Cleveland. So those those things are going well. but. We keep very close touch with our local health departments and with our other providers, our retail providers, the pharmacies. And when we start seeing it slowing down in the uptake, when they can't fill slots, then we open it up further. Uh, because the last thing we want to see is vaccines come into the state of Ohio and they sit there for very long. We want them out as quickly as we can in, into people's arms. So that really is the deciding factor whenever we, we make a move. And, and are you satisfied with the number of doses um, that are currently available in your state? Are you getting enough in short? We never get enough, but uh, you know we're getting a lot more than we, we had. I think this coming week, we've got about 570,000 doses, uh, which is you know at least 100,000 more, 120, 130,000 more than we've had any other time. So you know we're happy that these doses continue to go up. Uh, the Johnson & Johnson gives us the opportunity to do the, the one-shots in some, certain target groups. It's just much easier to do the one-shot than it is the two. So, you know, we're moving, we're moving forward. We've vaccinated a quarter of all Ohioans today. Uh, if you look at our 65 years of age and older, um, you know, we're over two-thirds of those have been vaccinated. That was really our priority, to vaccinate the most vulnerable among us. And you know, so that's that's going well. But it's a continuing uh, battle every week. And you know, I, I suppose at some point we're gonna this thing is gonna f flip on us, and we're gonna have more vaccine, and you know, then be worried about convincing people to to take it. What we've noticed is as we get down lower age groups, it takes longer to fill, and that's just just the reality. So. 
you know, we're focusing a lot. We've got TV ads up, and we're really working in neighborhoods and communities to, you know, make sure people have the vaccine, make sure it's available to them, uh, particularly in our underserved uh, communities. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and speaking of that, are you are you finding that um, you're having trouble getting certain communities to uh, access the the vaccine? Are, they, are, are certain populations being hesitant? You know, I think the conventional wisdom was that, uh, you know, African-American community might be more hesitant. But what we're, what we're finding is when um, communities come together, um, you know, we rely a lot. We're a very decentralized state in Ohio, uh, both politically, governmentally, um, you know, we've got seven major media markets in the state. And the way you get things done in Ohio is you work with the local community, you work with the local mayor, you work with the county commissioners, but you also work with the nonprofits. And so by doing that, um, you know, I think we're making very, very significant progress in, in that area. So I think also that, uh, you know, you're seeing in some of our rural parts of the state a slower uptake uh, than you might see in the suburban or you might see in the cities. Although, interestingly, uh, of our 88 counties, if you look at the top 10 counties as far as getting the most vaccine per capita, uh, a number of those counties are actually some of our smallest smallest counties. So, you know, it's kind of hard to go with conventional wisdom on this. You just have to keep going every day and, and, you know, as I said, really work with the local community, and they're the ones who can get this done. Well, Governor, we have an audience question related to the hesitancy uh, issue, and it comes from Terry Farley from Delaware, who asks, do you see vaccine hesitancy in your state? And if so, is it along party lines? Well, I think if you look at look at polling data, uh, certainly national polling data, and Ohio is usually pretty much a microcosm of the country, uh, you, you might see some more uh, among among Republicans. But um, you know, as I said, what we're really noticing is among age, uh, we, we think it's a it's a tougher sell the younger uh, group we get. Uh, so we certainly you know we've seen that we've seen some difference, as I said, between the urban and the suburban and then into, into the rural areas as well. well. Governor, let me push you one more, uh, one more question on this and ask, why do you think that in that polling that shows Repu- people who identify as Republican being more hesitant to get the vaccine, why do you think that is? Well, I'm really not sure. I mean, we, you know, we have seen on the, on the mask issue uh, we certainly saw some more hesitancy uh, generally among Republicans. Uh, we, we saw that as well. I mean, it's kind of interesting, though, in regard to the, the vaccine. Um, you know, we work very closely with the Trump administration. We're now working very, very closely with the Biden administration. And, you know, President Trump got the shots. Uh, he, he and the First Lady did. Uh, he also was the one, frankly, who, you know, started us down the path on warp speed to get... Uh, this vaccination or the vaccine in a, in a record period of time. So I think it's, look, we kind of take the world as we find it and we work at this every day. And again, it comes back to 
when we started on this, I'll just give you an example. We went through, we started on our nursing homes because that's where we saw over half of our deaths had come out of nursing homes. So the first day we literally went into our nursing homes and started vaccinating. And what we found is about 90% of the residents wanted it. But the first round through at least, uh, only 40% of the uh, workers there took it. So, you know, it's, it's a question of uh, some of them had the attitude and some people who didn't take it the first time said, look, I, I just want to wait. I'm, I may take it, but I want to kind of see how this works out. So I think people, as we move forward, are persuaded by their family. They're persuaded by their friends. Uh, they're influenced by um, their own doctor. I mean, that's who people are really listening to. My wife, Fran, I've been going since we got our second shot. And a couple of weeks uh, went by after that. We started, tr again, traveling the state. And we've been going into a lot of vaccine shot places, sites where we're doing vaccines. And it's great because everybody's happy. I mean, everybody's relieved, everybody's ready to move forward. But you, but you learn some things by talking to people. There's one man who said, um, I'm the first one in my family to get vaccinated, but I'm going home today and I'm gonna to tell everybody, you know, you need to get it, you need to come in. We had somebody else uh, who conversely said, I'm the last person in my family and they've been on me for some time and now, now I'm here. So we, we cannot underestimate friends, family, and your own personal doctor as really being the most influential people. Mm -hmm. And I and I hear you on that. But you mentioned that former President Trump and former First Lady Melania Trump both got vaccinated. Do you think it would be helpful if they did a PSA or a part of a campaign to the country, a nationwide PSA that said, we got the vaccine, we're doing great, you get the vaccine, you'll be doing great, you'll be fine? Sure, sure. Look, uh, we saw the the uh, uh, PSAs of the other former presidents. I think if President Trump did it, that would, that would be great. Um, but I honestly feel that at least what we have learned and what we see, that it, it does come back mostly to, you know, your trust in your own doctor. I mean, I, I tell people, don't listen to me. Go talk to your doctor. <laughs> Go talk to your doctor. Uh, you know, and listen to your mother, listen to your wife, listen to your spouse, you know, that's who people, that's who really is influential. And we try, you know, we put ads on and we have people with testimonials and those things I think are, are important. They kind of help create the right climate, but ultimately, you know, the people who are on the fence are going to be persuaded by people who love them more than, more than anything else. And it's, you know, it's like a lot of things in politics or a lot of things in public opinion. There are those people who you know are going to get it. There are those people who you know are just, they're just not going to get it. The group in the middle is, is you know, who you, we all have to, have to persuade. And, uh, you know, that's how we get out of this. I mean, one of the things I tell the people of Ohio, we do press conferences. We did one right in this room not too long ago today. Uh, if we, if we want to get back to normal, if we want to be able to hug our kids and grandkids and just do the, go to baseball games and do the things that we love, uh, this vaccine is our ticket out. And it's not just a ticket for you as an individual, but it's a ticket for all of us collectively because, you know, the quicker we get to that 
herd immunity uh, and make it hard for this vaccine to, to go from person to person, the quicker it's going to be we're back to normal. Mm -hmm. Now, Governor DeWine, you recently laid out your endgame strategy saying you hope to remove all health restrictions in Ohio when there are fewer than 50 new cases per 100,000 residents. So my question to you is, where is that figure now? And are you optimistic that this truly is the beginning of the end? It's the beginning of the end, because I think this vaccine, you know, the more people we get vaccinated, the quicker we can, we're going to drive this thing down. We started, uh, if you went back to December, you know, we were at over 700 uh, cases per 100,000 over a two-week period of time statewide. That's seven times, seven times the high incidence level of the CDC puts out. Um, we have seen it drop and drop and drop, and you know it got down to 140-something last week, but this week it went up. It went up just a little bit, not much, statistically not much difference. We are also seeing it among our new cases. Uh, you know, those cases had been dropping for, for several months. They've now plateaued out. So I tell the people of Ohio, we're in a race. We're literally in a race. And we have a variant in Ohio, as in most states, that is multiplying and it's moving and it's more contagious. Uh, the doctors tell us than what we started with. That's the bad news. The good news is we've, we've vaccinated a fourth of the people of the state of Ohio and we're vaccinating, as I said yesterday, 80,000 more, and we're gonna to continue to hammer that home. So it's a, it, it's a race and we're gonna ultimately win it, but we've still gotta be very careful. Uh, I tell people we've gotta we've got to continue to, with our mask on uh, when we're out in, out in public, we've gotta do that at least for the next several months. And um, you know we'll ultimately win this, but uh, we mm -hmm. can't stop. Now we can't stop. Now we can't. We're driving on the other team. It was like football analogy. We're down to the four yard line, but we can't spike the ball and walk off the field. You know, we got to finish mm -hmm. it. Well, Governor, let's let's talk about a potential obstacle here. And by potential obstacle, I mean uh, Ohio Senate Bill 22, which would give the legislature the power to cancel health orders issued by you, issued by the governor. You vetoed that bill. I believe you vetoed it yesterday and the, or this week, and the legislature overrode the veto yesterday. So what does the bill do to your ability to protect Ohioans, not only during the coronavirus pandemic, but also during weather emergencies or, or terrorist attacks? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. The big picture, uh, as I told the people of the state today, is this does not go into effect for 90 days, 89 days now. Uh, I hope we're out of this uh, virus by then. I, I, at the rate we're going, I think we very well could be, and that's, that's certainly what I hope. What I told the state legislature, and I sent a five-page letter to the legislature outlining all the problems uh, that I saw with the bill. This is not about me. Uh, it's not about even how we deal probably with this coronavirus, but it is going to impact uh, a future crisis in Ohio. Uh, another another problem, either at the local level or a problem at, at the state level, level and international. Uh, ex example, uh, someone comes in into Ohio uh, from a hot Ebola area of the world. Um, we now have the ability to quarantine them. Uh, this bill would say you could not quarantine that person uh, unless you had a medical diagnosis that that person had Ebola. 
uh, and you can come up with replaceable or with any other, other kind of example. So you either would have to have a medical diagnosis of that person or you'd have to have a medical diagnosis of the person that they, that they were actually exposed to. So someone coming in from a foreign country, obviously you can't do it with a foreign person. Um, I'll give you a real, a real example. Uh, when this started a year ago, we had two students, Miami University students, my alma mater, Oxford, Ohio, uh, come back from Wuhan and right at the time, and they agreed to be quarantined. They, they cooperated fully, um, and it turned out they did not have it. But if this law had been in effect, and if those two Miami University students who came back from Wuhan had said, no, we're not gonna quarantine, uh, the Butler County, Ohio Health Department would have had no authority under this bill to quarantine them because they couldn't have proven that they had a medical diagnosis. In those days, a year ago, we did not have the ability in the state of Ohio to test those individuals. We couldn't have tested them. What we did is we, we did the swab, we sent it off to the CDC five or six days later, uh, we, get it, we get it back. So in a future case like that, you know, those individuals, if they, if they want to, uh, we will have no ability to quarantine them. Uh, another example, just one quick example, uh, a, a much more maybe common example is a bad lettuce, E. coli, some problem. Uh, this bill prohibits a local health department from issuing a general order. General order would say anybody, any uh, grocery store or any restaurant who got that that you have to, you're on notice, you have to destroy it or you have to do whatever uh, the protocol would, would be. We couldn't issue an order like that uh, if you didn't know exactly everybody who bought it. So you couldn't issue a general order. So it's a, uh, I could go into the constitutional issues and talk about, uh, you know, it gives them the ability to pull back, you know, uh, health orders. Um, right. We're going to get through this one. It's the next one I'm worried about. And that's why I felt so passionately that this was a bad idea for the legislature to pass it and a, and a bad idea for them to override my veto. Well, right, because the, the unspoken thing here in, in every example that you gave, Governor, and in the entirety of your answer, is that it's the legislature, it seems to me, um, encroaching upon the power um, of the governor to make decisions on behalf of the state. And is that the re one among many reasons why you vetoed that bill. Well, sure. I mean, again, it's you know we think we're going to get out of this in the next ninety days, but um, future governors, and we just don't know what's going to come. We have state state sponsored terrorism. We have uh, rogue terrorism groups uh, who can you know do all kinds of, of damage and come in. Uh, we historically in this country look to governors to manage. Uh, a crisis, flooding along the Ohio River, tornadoes in Western Ohio. These are things that we historically look to governors to, to, to manage. And, you know, this would will really just cripple uh, a future governor's ability to do this. We have tried throughout this pandemic to listen to the experts, to listen to the medical community, uh, to consult as many people as we could uh, I'll tell you, I've been involved in, in government. Uh, you and I were talking off the air, but uh, you know, I've been involved in government for over 40 years. And the mistakes that I have made, and I've, I made them, uh, you know, whether it's in Congress or, or, or you know, here in Ohio, um, have come from when I didn't 
get enough facts. I didn't drill down. I didn't ask enough questions. I wasn't meticulous enough in finding out everything that was going on about an issue. And so when this pandemic hit a year ago, I tried to remember that every day and, and tried to you know, bring in the best experts that I could find and make those decisions based upon the best medical science that, that we could come up with. And um, I'm not saying they were all right, but they were informed at least by the best information we could get. Very difficult for a legislative body collectively to do that and to react in real, in real time. Right, Go Governor DeWine and I were talking, I asked him, you know, what job hasn't he had in Ohio? He was a prosecutor, state legislature, Congress, Senate, uh, lieutenant governor, attorney general, uh, and now governor of the state. So when you were here uh, at Washington Post Live last April, and this was at the early stage of the pandemic, you were prescient when you said things wouldn't get back to normal until vaccines were readily available across America. Given that, what you said back then, what lessons have you learned from, from governing these past 12 months? Well, I've learned a lot of things. And, you know, I think that uh, I, I kind of joke with my team who's done a phenomenal job. These people have worked, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. They've done a phenomenal job. But I kind of joke with them uh, almost every day and say, well, the next pandemic we have, we won't do it that way or we'll modify it that way. I mean, look, you learn every day. We don't... We didn't know, for example, a year ago when I was on your, your show, we didn't know the power of mask. I mean, it just, we didn't know. We have right. really learned that and, and we followed it very closely in Ohio. Um, when we decided last summer that when kids went back to school K through 12 in Ohio, they were all gonna wear masks and we mandated that and people thought I was crazy. Uh, but what we found is that it really works and we've found found very, very little spread in the classroom, in the classroom, when, even when kids were closer than six feet apart, virtually no spread is occurring. So we didn't know that when this started. Um, and so, you know, some of these things you just learn as, as you go on. But the, 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 in answer to your question, as far as the big issues, I think there's a couple things. One, and these are not just for me, but for all of us, uh, one, Public health has been underfunded in this country for a long, long time, maybe forever. Uh, we've got to do a better job funding public health. It's just so very, very important. Number two, uh, we never want to be in a position in this country again when we have to uh, rely on unreliable supply chains for personal protection equipment for our medical uh, personnel. Uh, what we went through early on in this was just hell. Uh, trying to get protection for our nurses, our doctors, our people who are working in nursing homes. Uh, the supply chain coming out of China was just a mess. And we've got to make some of this stuff in this country. Uh, in fact, we've worked very hard uh, to work with the Ohio Manufacturers Association and with Jobs Ohio uh, to make some of these products in Ohio now. And we've got to do more than that, more of that. Governor, have you noticed a difference um, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration when it comes to responsiveness, attentiveness to your needs as governor um, when it comes to dealing with the pandemic? I'll be candid with you. Uh, 
The Trump administration responded very quickly. One, one Sunday morning, I called the president. I can't believe I called the president of the United States on Sunday morning, but I was so frustrated with something. And he reacted very, very quickly. We had it solved by the end of the day. Um, the same is true, frankly, for the Biden administration. Uh, they, have, they have listened. Uh, even in the, in, the, in the transition before President Biden became president, uh, his team was reaching out to us and had good conversations. So we've had a good relationship with both the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Uh, I wanna go back to something. Uh, you, you mentioned schools earlier, um, and I'm just wondering, uh, what is it, more than 85% of Ohio school district, districts are offering at least some in-person classes. Are you satisfied with how public schools in your state have handled the virus? Yes, I think they've done a phenomenal job. Uh, we are, again, a very local government state, and we have 600 and some school district, public school districts in the state, and they all run themselves uh, and have their own governing boards and their own superintendent or CEO. We started off and gave them guidelines, and you know, pretty elaborate guidelines about if, if they went back in person last fall, Here's what they had to do. And one of the things I mentioned is everybody had to have a mask on and we went through a lot of sanitation and other, other things. Many of the schools did that, they went back. Some elected to be remote and we allowed them to, to do that. And, but in, in, in late December, you know, we were seeing more and more uh, evidence that kids who were remote, some of those kids were not doing very well at all. Some kids thrive on it. Uh, some kids like remote better, in fact, but many, many kids do not. And so we made a decision, uh, governor's office, I made the decision to do whatever we could to get kids back in school. And so what we did is we told the schools, uh, and we had a number of them were, the more rural schools were in session personally. Uh, the urban schools were, most of them were remote, but we wanted to get every, every kid back in. And so I said, look, we will vaccinate every teacher in the state. We'll vaccinate every, every school personnel in your building. If you sign a document, it says you will be back in school no, no later uh, than, March, than March 1st. It's worked exceedingly well. We have, I think, 99% of the school districts and 98% of the students who are back in school at least part of every week. Some are hybrid, which means they're in two days a week. Uh, some are in five days a week. So we are almost uh, pushing 100%. We've got one school district that's not, decided not to do that. But we've, we've vaccinated over 200,000 uh, teachers. We got it done in four weeks. And when March 1 hit, uh, we, were, we were rolling. So we're very happy with that. Governor DeWine, I'm gonna hit you with a non-COVID question. And that is about a couple of hours um, before we sat down for this interview, President Biden finished his first press conference as president of the United States. And he was asked about whether the filibusters should be done away with, especially to pass voting rights legislation or gun control or measures dealing with, with immigration or, or even infrastructure. You served in the, in, in the Senate from 95 to 2007. Those are the years when Joe Biden was also in the chamber. As a, as a former Senator, if you were sitting there in the chamber now, how would you vote on whether the filibuster should stay or go? I, I'm a traditionalist. Uh, I mean, I think there truly 
uh, is a difference between the Senate and the House. I, I think they were designed differently. Uh, I think the, the filibuster, uh, sometimes it can be irritating uh, if you're on the wrong side of it. Um, but I believe that it is it should be maintained. Uh, I think it allows for more deliberation. It can slow things down sometimes when they need to be slowed down. So I'm a, I'm a traditionalist about this. A traditionalist, but do you think do you what do you make of the argument, particularly from the left uh, and from uh, Democratic members of the Senate, that the filibuster has been abused the way it's being used now? Well, look, I, I was there when Democrats, you know, started filibustering uh, judicial appointments, which really had not been filibustering before. Um, you know, if you had a Democrat on here uh, from that era, you know, or even the current era, you know, they would say it's Republicans' fault. I mean, we, we, we go back and forth and we can make these arguments, but I, I think in the end, we're, we're better off having, having that. Uh, we're better off having it, and I, I, that, that's that's where I come down. Um, you know, we we had it had it for many, many, many years, and I think it does slow things down. And I think it, what it does really, uh, and to me, this is the most important thing. Uh, in the United States Senate, uh, I, I just tell you my own personal story. I got a lot of bills passed. I'm proud of what I did. Every single bill I got passed. I had a Democrat co-sponsor. I work with people who are, you know, I'm conservative, liberal. We got together and got bills passed. Why did we do that? Why did I always want a Democrat? And why did a Democrat always want me or some other Republican? The answer is you got to get the 60 votes. And there's nothing wrong with people working together. And when you can jam something through with 51 votes, uh, it, People don't have to work together. Parties don't have to work together. When it takes 60, uh, it makes a big difference. And that 60 vote number, uh, you know, caused me to reach across the aisle many, many, many times. And, and I think it was better for the country. I think when we can pass legislation with both parties, maybe not unanimously on board, but at least with some members on board, I think we're better off. Governor DeWine, I've got at least five more follow-up questions based on that, on that answer, but we don't have any time. So we're going to have to leave it there. Governor Mike DeWine of the great state of Ohio, thank you very much for coming back to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Join us tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Uh, yeah, join us, me, uh, <laughs> for First Look. Uh, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis, and then come back at 11.30 when I will be in conversation with Congresswoman Judy Chu and Congressman Mark Takano about combating anti-Asian racism. You can all always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more information about upcoming programs. In the meantime, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you again for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.